Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. I'm Will Mallard and today we're joined once again by the writer of the Sunday Supplement, Adam Lawrence. Adam, great to have you on. Thanks for having me again, Will. Now, Adam is, a, is an economist and um, I, I made a mistake in a previous show of introducing him as having an MBA from Coventry. The, the MBA is actually from Warwick University uh, and uh, I, I have an excuse in that Warwick University technically, at least in part, is in Coventry. Uh, so great to have you on again, Adam. We're going to be talking about taking a long view in volatile times uh, and periods of volatility. And uh, I've yet to characterise what's going on in the world at the moment. And, and indeed, uh, it seems to be never-ending periods of volatility. But taking the long view from an investment perspective and understanding what the different levers that are in, in play uh, within property investment, within uh, the markets that drive the, uh, the creation of uh, investment value and, and ultimately returns and uh, what keeps your money safe or, or what, what's at risk with the money that you're putting in. So um, on, on that note, you, you're... You've got some thoughts. Do you want to give us some headline things and we can get into the detail? Absolutely. So, first of all, thanks for mentioning my MBA. I always enjoy that, as you know. So, any excuse to mention it is, is very welcome, Will. But what what the M and, and what I try to do on a weekly basis, anyone who listens regularly or who reads the supplement regularly will know, is I try to give some, some macro sides views. And then I tried to answer it. One of the things you're taught in your MBA is when you present to people, there's one question you need to answer. That's so what? Why are you telling me this stuff? You know, I'm obsessed with data. I am totally, but for a reason, you know, not just for academic interest. So what? What does it mean? Right. And that's when we get into the micro and the detail side of it. And that's what we're going to try and do a little bit this week. Now, what's going on at the moment in the world? Obviously, everybody's aware of the uh the the aggressive the aggressive expansion of the russian nation uh back into something that looks like the old soviet union or beyond is is probably not understating the objectives of, of vladimir putin anyway and he's obviously going about that at the moment by an incursion into ukraine laying waste to the ukrainian cities um boots on the ground old school war doesn't look to be particularly well organized in terms of logistics, troop movements, all the problems that even though, you know, as far as Europe is concerned, we're, you know, 75 years on, 80 years on from the last significant conflict, 
there's more parallels than than a lot of people would like um and then of course the spectre hiding behind all that is the parallel with how world war ii ended is fresh in everybody's minds and there's been some fairly aggressive chat from the russian side of the fence around not worrying too much about pressing that red button if they need to so you can understand those concerns and it's very 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 much human nature so if we put the humanitarian cause to one side for a moment because i i've written about that um we, we all there's some really good things going on just to mention briefly had a lot of respect this week for the people whoever came up with the idea i think it's a genius idea book an airbnb in ukraine and then tell them that you're not coming and you're just trying to donate money to people on the ground who need money to fight ultimately for their democratic freedom i think that, i think that's fantastic I also heard another good stat this week that I wanted to share, which was only 20 to 25 percent of the world's population lives in a democracy. And in the West and the, primarily the people who are going to be listening to this podcast and who read the supplement, we forget that. We forget about our own significance in our family, our own network, our region, our country internationally. So that puts quite a bit into perspective. Now, that's the people, not the wealth obviously, which also makes a difference. But we can we can get into uh, all that stuff another time. But it, it puts the, it sets the scene, it puts things into context. So what is the natural human reaction when there is a war, right? There's a danger to life, yeah? And there's a danger, so the humanitarian side of it feels very real to us in the UK at the moment. There's also the understanding, and if you live in Poland, you know, you're going to feel differently about this. You live in Romania, Hungary, you're going to feel differently about this. There's also the imminent threat potentially to your country, your sovereignty and your life. Now, everyone's hoping that NATO's Article 5, it doesn't have to be triggered. But I think most people are probably also hoping that if a Russian boot does step over one of those borders, that NATO are good to their word and Article 5 is triggered. Because they've got to be, otherwise they're a sham organisation, ultimately. I'm not a warmonger, I'm absolutely anti-war. I'm not anti-war to the Jeremy Corbyn stance that effectively might let people step all over you. I just think war is generally a poor outcome for 99% plus percent of people and a good outcome for 1% of people who make a lot of money out of it. And that's the reality of war, not an ideological position on war. Um, so there's an imminent threat to life. We automatically, as human beings, scoop in, scope in, tunnel vision, short term, what's going on? What are we going to do about it? Now, for the last couple of years, ever since the pandemic became a pandemic rather than a, a virus originating in Asia, I was talking about potential fragility in the economy from problems on top of problems. And there was early on, I speculated what might happen if a, 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 an influential world leader died from COVID. Because I said this will be another hit to the markets and it will, ha it will have further repercussions. Not long after that, Boris Johnson went into intensive care. And that's one, one element that could really have changed the shape. It would absolutely have changed the shape of the pandemic response in the UK. Um, because there would have had to have been a new leader, obviously, stating the obvious. Um, and it didn't happen, but it could have done. Now... A war on the back of a pandemic is much more significant. And now, of course, it has much more that well, I spoke last week a little bit about the effect of the impact on, say, the German economy 
versus the UK economy because they're buying so much more of their gas and oil from Russia. And Germany are getting a lot of heat, probably rightly so, but not having thought about this situation, especially as for the last day, you know, the annexation of Crimea didn't go unnoticed eight years ago. Um, the, the running down of foreign currency reserves and the building up of gold was leading to something. So, yes, hindsight is twenty twenty, absolutely. Um, and yes, it's also fair to say that when we understood things like in the US in 2020, they understood that 90% of the world's prescription drugs are made in China. I don't know where, but I guess it's probably somewhere called Drug City, because that's generally how it works in China. Now, I don't know if the US have done anything about that. I haven't heard any primary research since then on that, that topic. There is an issue that if you want to pay 1400 quid for your iPhone, it's made by Foxconn and it's made in China. If you want to move it from China, it's probably going to be 2800 quid. So Apple don't really want to do that. And money comes before ethics a lot of the time, unfortunately. And that, that goes for all of us. Maybe, maybe we don't like the fact that Amazon doesn't pay all its tax and has crippled the high street. Do we feel strongly enough not to buy from Amazon? Look, hands up, we buy up, we buy from Amazon. If you're listening to this and you don't, then well done, you're more principled than I am. So it's putting ideology into action. I'm, I'm not a big fan of ideology, to be honest, but you don't want the water running downhill and always going to go to the least line of resistance. That's how you end up buying lots of your commodities from, from Russia, right? So short term, dangerous to life. Let's look at tomorrow. Let's hope we make it through the night. I can understand that. Nuclear threat as high as it's been since the Bay of Pigs. I don't think that's an overstatement of the of the current situation. That's what, 61 years ago? Um, so there's a factor there. But going back to the problem on top of a problem makes a bigger problem. It's not a linear equation. It's a geometric progression in these situations. So if you add half a percent, three quarters of a percent of the inflation rate, when the inflation rate is already in what would be deemed out of control territory, if the media wasn't being told by the government and the Bank of England to play down the threat of inflation, mm -hmm. um, it's much more problematic than when inflation is at a target of 2% and it gains three quarters of a percent. Or, you know, the referendum put inflation up by two, two and a half percent quite briefly. We went into the fours, but because we were so low, it didn't really cause any, any issue. Um, whereas a smaller problem, a smaller rise on top of an already problematic situation has got a much bigger impact. So I talked quite a lot about when the pandemic first came about the long-term impact of pandemics. And a lot of the analysis that already exists actually looked at pandemics versus wars and how they impact things differently. What it didn't do is look at a pandemic, on uh, a war on top of a pandemic. Although of course, what happened a hundred years ago with the Spanish flu was there was the first world war and then there was a pandemic. And then there was about three years of economic instability and difficulty and downward sloping results. And then there was the Roaring Twenties. So the Roaring Twenties is not really... From, from, really 20, 20, uh, so from 1920 to 1929, it was 1924 to, to 29. To 28, really. Yeah, yeah or yeah. 28, yeah. It actually was only five years of that decade. It's quite difficult. 
decades don't tend to. Time well, well, one of the one of the things that um, I, I came across in this is that uh, the highest level of unemployment ever in the United Kingdom was in twenty uh, nineteen twenty. That's right. That's right. And it was it was yeah. double. It was decent double digit, about fourteen percent or something like that. It was decent double digits. Yeah. And yeah. huge uh, parallel to that, there were there were huge strikes, industrial action. Uh, and we're starting to see little smatterings of of that at the moment with uh, with tube strikes and uh, or tube driver strikes and 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 similar things. Well, maybe maybe you're feeling the pain of that more being in London, of course. And, and TFL are fairly uh, on the non-Elon Musk side of the fence. Let's face it; they're, uh, they're 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 flexing their union muscles quite a lot. I I must confess, I didn't hear a very good write-up of why the industrial action was being taken on the tube. It didn't sound particularly well justified this time round. Um, mm -hmm. I think the TFL just understand the power that they have to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to really hurt the, the, the city in a big, big way. So it seems a bit naughty this time round to me, Will, but I, I don't know a lot about it. Uh, and in terms of uh, like looking at this as a long-term long -term investment view, while there's so many moving parts going on, the volatility today. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I, I talked about when I was talking, I was looking into the pandemic research and the war research that got on the economic impact of pandemics over, because there have been dozens of these things and we've got data on them over 500 years, you know, so it exists and we've got, and it, it's very tempting. I once had a conversation with someone that, that said, you know, well, they said, well, the stock market's just more sophisticated these days. And it's utter nonsense, right? Because still, the primary drivers in the stock market are emotional. They're not fundamental, right? They're emotional. And then there's technical analysis opportunities and trading opportunities on the back of that. And yes, there's high-frequency trading and everybody races to get their, their hedge funds with the best wire through the mountains to the Chicago Exchange or whatever it takes, right? That didn't happen in 1929, but emotions were the same. Human behavior was the same. Margin was a similar concept. <laughs> Short sellers existed. And guess what? There was asymmetry of information and there was insider trading. And that went on to the same levels that it does today. So there's, there's many, many, many more similarities than there are differences. So you can still learn a lot from looking at market impact 100, 200 years ago. As long as it was a transparent, efficient market, you, you, you can't you can talk yourself out of finding validity in those numbers, but it's not really true. So the long term impact of pandemics historically has been uh, the, 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 the battle between labor and capital has swung in the favor of labor. So it's changed the way people want to work, what they want to do. This should be resonating with people at the moment. They're, they're talking in New York about having to raise bankers' salaries to record levels so they can persuade people to come back into the office because the chief exec wants him in the office. He wants to go back to the old days because that's it was all good. That's how it worked. And they crack the whip and you work 16 hours a day, 20 hours a day till your eyes bleed or whatever. And you, you did that until you burnt out. And then you got some new people. Uh, there was no problem. And they made an absolute ton of money. And they want to keep they want to keep those things going, whereas they just don't believe if you're working from home that you're going to be applying that same level of. And of course, what the bosses also realise is there's a there's a concept called concerted control where 
you don't have to explicitly state things. The office culture does them for you, right? The cauldron works for you. If you take them out of that cauldron, then they're free. You know, you can't recreate that environment on Zoom, WhatsApp, Teams, however you want to try and do it. The culture breaks and your culture is whatever your natural personality type is going to take over, ultimately. Right, so long-term labour beats capital returns. Capital returns that in the 40 years following a pandemic are historically 1% or 2% weaker than they've been in the years prior to that pandemic. That's the general impact. GDP tends to suffer more than after a war. Why is that? Well, because after a war, there's rebuilding, right? And GDP is a very poor measure. It's widely accepted as the worst measure apart from all the others, although there are suggested metrics that could be better, but it's the one that they still use. And if you have to rebuild 50 billion, 100 billion, $500 billion worth of infrastructure after a war, someone's got to build it. Someone's got to finance well, well, it. One of, the, one of the factors surely is demographic change as well, because typically there's baby booms in, uh, in uh, a few years after a war. Uh, which has a uh, like if you have more more population GDP generally uh, is impacted as well. So there's a there's a group there's a small niche of people who have been getting quite obsessed with the birth rate over recent years, and there's a fairly long conversation around emancipation, uh, women's rights, um, just the overall anxiety of the younger generations around the future of the world which the last two and a half years will not have done a lot to help, realistically, mm -hmm. because it doesn't feel like a great time to bring in a life into the world. There was a lot of speculation around COVID that, like, oh, everyone's on furlough, everyone's at home, the birth rate's going to mm -hmm. scoot up. That didn't happen. After a war, as you say correctly, there's the difference, the difference between those things. But as time's gone on, we, we do have a trending down fertility rate as we look at things. That's not the only thing, as always, it's not the only metric to look at because you've got to look at infant mortality as well. You've got to look at overall life expectancy, um, but you, you've got to look at... And, you know, and immigration, of course, is a, a big factor. Yeah. And, um, and as you go back into the, uh, the 1950s, Britain was opening its doors at a, a rate that it had never done previously, or that, that, that may not be completely accurate where uh, huge numbers of, of people from across the Commonwealth came in to, to work in the factories to uh, fuel the economy uh, because there just weren't enough adults. Yeah, no, that, that is accurate, Will, on the basis that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have had that border control uh, for many more years pre-World War One. I. I mean, pa passports weren't around till I think it was the 1920s, and there's a fairly obvious reason why the passport was introduced, right? Mm -hmm. um, WW1 was the, was the driver. Um, and there's, there's multiple ways to interpret that, of course, as well. Uh, so that would, be, that would be accurate. And there's obviously the political side. There's the, the open stated political side that pacifies the further right of the Conservative Party who are anti-immigration based on ideology. And then there's the true policy of the Conservative Party. It's certainly a Boris Johnson, which is the, the, the economy has been built on the back of cheap labour, ultimately. Now, what Boris does these days is he spins what's already happening to him because of the pandemic as a strategic masterstroke. And we'll, we'll move to a high wage, high skill economy, you know, utter soundbite hogwash, in my view, 
um, because ultimately the re one of the reasons why productivity has been struggling so much is, and this is quite a detailed conversation, but it comes from the smashing of the benefits culture lifestyle that the Conservative Party saw as becoming endemic after the Blair administration. And I, I believe, personally, the, the data bears out. There's an element of truth in that. There's also a huge amount of bias and a huge amount of, of, uh, of BS in that as well. Of course, there is politics. But what they, from, a, from an economic perspective, what the Conservative Party have tried to do is move people from the teat of the state towards the private sector and try and get them to pay at least some of the benefits bill that they would otherwise have been paying when people were on were fully were fully suckled to the teat of the state, right? So that's been the ongoing, and that's moved unemployment down from that pre-Great Recession 6 and 7% levels down to 4% via the Great Recession when we touched sort of, you know, 9, 10, 11 at certain points, but it zoomed back up pretty, pretty quickly, the employment rate. And we've just had this big trend downwards, a bit like the fertility rate, actually, as it goes. So mm. there are there are trends between the two. And it's kind of, I look at it as it's 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 definitely forced some of the work shy back into work. There's there's a there's a reasonable case in the data to make that statement. Um it's also hurt a lot of people, it's also pushed a lot of people over the edge that shouldn't have done. Uh there's been collateral damage to that happening. And you can take a position on whether that's right or wrong for the the sum of the people um, versus the individual cases, some of which are pretty tragic. Um, depends whether you think like Ken Loach or Boris Johnson, realistically. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a definite difference between the two. So that's the, the, the overall, and this is really what we're talking about today, the overall long-term trend and then a blip, right? And those blips can be significant because they can be pandemics and they can be wars. They're the most significant blips. But if you go back to the long-term impact of what's likely to happen after a pandemic, capital struggles to make good returns, good real returns, right? Cap uh, Labour has a bigger power. So that can force wages up, which in itself can force unemployment up because some businesses become unviable and they fold and therefore... There aren't as many people employed. Now, there's also not really being talked about by the Bank of England. And you can understand why there's political connotations to this. But the private sector has ballooned in its employment of people since COVID. Right. And there's been lots of people commenting that they were recruiting COVID marshals out till the end of 2022. And there's anecdotal stories that we might have all heard of people who, when they were recruited by Track and Trace, which obviously... The 37 billion figure will last a long, long time in the memory of a lot of people. When they were recruited, they were sitting in a call centre, 80 people, socially distanced, of course, doing nothing for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. There were maybe six calls a day for 80 people to field um, because things just weren't up and running and they weren't efficient. So tens of thousands of people into a sector that has been absolutely carved up since 2010 and austerity and all the rest of it, suddenly the teat of the state is there in a different way, in a, in a job that doesn't add any value to GDP. Productivity-wise would be appallingly characterised. Um, and those jobs are going to have to go quietly over the next number of years. 
and the people will be phased back into the system. So there's an organic level of unemployment that's going to come back as the private sector shrinks because we'll go to a stage where COVID has created 5,000 new jobs that are permanent because suddenly we'll have a minister for pandemics and we'll have a, a plan and we'll and that'll that'll work for about 20 years until a government uh -huh. will say as long as there's not another pandemic, right? It'll be it'll be phased out again. So there's there's long-term trends around that stuff that that are meaningful. So back to the initial question, right? So what? So what for everybody? Well, the point is you have to look beyond what, what's happened this week. FTSE's down about seven percent. Brent crude's hit $118 a barrel, which is highest level since 2013, I think. Um, again, that's not a particularly helpful statement because what's helpful is to look at the inflation-adjusted price of Brent crude. Um, where does this impact things? I heard a speech from a chief exec of a uh, farming trade body last night, and he stated price of red diesel, which is, for those who don't know, is diesel that's not subject to excise duty, has gone from 50 pence a litre, so you can only use it in farm machinery, um, although I'm not sure it always stays in farm machinery, but that's another conversation. Um, it's gone from 50 pence to a pound, and the price of fertiliser has gone from 200 pounds a tonne to 750 pounds a tonne if you can get it. So what? Well, that has to be inflationary. That has to be passed through the supply chain. Now, some of that has already happened, but some of that is because diesel prices have come under pressure a little bit more in the last week because of what's happening to Brent crude. We're going to see 160 at the pumps before long if that's going to persist. Now, that our friends in Saudi Arabia could change that relatively easily and are under pressure at the moment to turn the taps on in a big way. And this is where I talked a little bit about this last week. The, the, one of the problems is that OPEC, uh, the, the organisation, the, the, the cartel that controls the oil price, really, actually, it is, it is, uh, that is what it is. Um, there's a lot of data integrity issues with how much reserves countries have actually got, how much they can actually produce. And so what you see is not always what you get with strategic oil reserves. But Saudi Arabia turned the tax on in a big way. That could help massively. Um, there are still Iranian sanctions on oil, to my knowledge. If they were lifted, that could help quite a bit as well. Although there's speculation that Iranian oil already gets into the black market in China and other countries anyway. Um, so how much will it help? I don't know. But these things might be needed because the oil price could go 150. No problem here. The oil price could, could, you know, how long will the conflict go on? We know that every day it goes on, the expectation of how long it's going to go on also extends. So every day is worth about 2.2 days or whatever in terms of the length of the conflict going on. Ukraine aren't going to give up. I think that's pretty clear. Um, Russia don't have a way out which enables Putin to save face or do anything meaningful. So Sweden and Finland are now looking to join NATO in record speed. All this means uncertainty, right? When you invest in property or anything, realistically, if, if you are investing rather than speculating, when you invest in anything, you take in a long-term time horizon view, right? So inflation on top of inflation, overall not bad news for hard asset owners, especially if you're well leveraged. Because it's going to so, so you've, you've borrowed money at a, a lower rate than uh, the inflation rate. 
Yeah, so if you borrow, and, and that's currently obviously what you can do, you can borrow money two, two and a half, three percent below the rate of inflation. So in real terms, the bank is paying you to borrow money and, and you need to get your head around that. But you've still got to invest that money at a better nominal rate than the cost of the debt. You can't just borrow it and spend it and, and, and that's all fine. You've still got to invest that money. So, you know, the 2010s, I've said before, is a decade where in real terms, 56% of the property prices in the UK went down. So after allowing for inflation, 56% of the UK had a more affordable, that's why you see no headlines about it, but in real terms, they cost less money. Now, one of the problems was in the 2010s, a lot of people's pay packets in real terms went down because that's how the financial crisis manifested itself to the person on the street. So further energy pressures will mean further pressures on tenants. Luckily, it only takes a relatively small percentage of household bills. But for the people who are on benefits and are on frozen housing allowance and everything else, they're going to get hammered. For the people on minimum wage, they're getting a 6.6% increase next month. right? So they've got a decent level of inflation protection. For the people on pensions, they're only getting, I think it's a 3.1% increase, which at the moment doesn't look like enough. Now, something's going to give here, Will, uh, because, oh, for the people going to new jobs, they might be seeing a 10% pay rise. For the people staying in the same jobs, they might be seeing a 2% pay rise because the companies are trying to control the level of inflation they've got to pass on to their customers. Otherwise, we're going to have, and this is where inflation, the, the vicious circle is spinning mm -hmm. up and spinning up and spinning up. And that's why the Bank of England are concerned about wage negotiations. Um, the one saving, the one big saving grace is that the households have got savings balances built up over the pandemic in, in aggregate. Now, what really happened is the asset owners built money, whereas the tenants didn't generally build money because they didn't have shares. They didn't have houses they owned to go up in value. So they're struggling. They're struggling more. They borrowed money. They weren't. Maybe so so if you were to view your your property investment as a as a business, what what does this mean? So it means that ultimately new rents are up massively. So from a cash flow perspective, you're looking in pretty good shape. Your affordability calculations need to be quite carefully looked at in concert with your EPC. So if you're putting people into houses that have got E, e standard EPCs. What's the impact of that on their disposable income, right? You need to think about that in a way that you've never thought about that before. When you put a tenant into a property, you are underwriting that tenant, right? Financially underwriting them. Or your agent is doing that for you, or your referencing agency is doing that for you. It's not the way that it's pitched, but that's what you're doing. Now, of course, you're also background checking and assessing the likely personality type and the stability of their job, which is part of the underwriting. But from an income perspective, that's what you're doing. So you need to think about that process again at the moment and how you're doing it and whether you need to tweak it. Because if the EPC was done in 2013 and it said the energy bills will be two grand a year, you can guarantee that today that means four grand a year, at least, at least. So you might need five grand a year. If there's any uh, landlords on the, the show that um, are interested in finding out a bit more of this stuff, uh, Adam is a one of the founders of 
Partners in Property, which is a property networking group, for under 100 quid, you can uh, not only get access to the monthly local meetups, but all of this stuff is covered in great detail in their, uh, their information files. Uh, there's numerous, there's several hundred hours worth of uh, recorded detailed pre presentations on EPCs, uh, on, on tenant management, on uh, asset management, on anything really to do with being a property investor and being a landlord and, and what's going on in the property market. For under 100 quid, there's no ongoing long-term commitment. You can you can go in and have a look, and uh, if you don't uh, like it, don't don't come back after a month. Uh, it might be even less for a digital membership. I'm not even sure how it works, but look them up. Partnersandproperty.com or .co.uk. It's 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 dot it's partners-property.co.uk. Right. Um, Partners-property.co.uk. Thank you for that, Will. And it's worth just saying, if you listen to this before the 11th of March 2022, we've got a sustainability consultant coming to our London meeting, which is on the 11th of March. If you do, if you're a new member and you do sign up and you put my name in, um, then you can get your first month half price and your second month for free. So we're losing money in real terms by letting you in under those terms. But we know that. We hope you come. We hope you like it. Uh, and if um, you're listening after that date, uh, you'll, you'll have uh, access to the recording of that presentation at, at, at your leisure, at, at home, anytime in the future. So I, I'd argue, uh, you know, if it's under 50 quid, uh, it, it's worth paying it just to, just to watch that presentation. You don't do anything else with the membership. I personally go along to, to the meetings because I, uh, I enjoy the networking um, and, and meeting like-minded individuals who have different uh, different experiences, different uh, views of the world. And I, I learn tremendous things from the, those daytime sessions. Uh, the London ones are on a, a Friday. I think it's the second Friday of the month. Uh, but they've got uh, they've got them all, all all over the country: Manchester, Birmingham, Southampton, Bristol. Um, and I, I think they're, they're looking at expanding the network. So if you're in another area, get in touch with Adam Lawrence and uh, he might help you get set up with a, uh, a local meetup as well. Fantastic, Will. Thank you. And we are going to be talking energy performance over the course of the next four years, unavoidably, and, and I'm sure beyond that. And there's some big changes going on this year, which we're as on top of as we can be, and we'll be providing as many relevant speakers who are not on the typical property speaker circuit to provide the real deal on what's going on. That's ultimately what we try and deliver. And, and just to be explicitly clear, um, like I, I, I don't receive any um, any payment or or any. Uh, uh, remuneration for endorsing partners and property. I, I pay to be a member, um, and, and I think it's fantastic. It's one of the best things you can do uh, at, at pretty much any stage of your, uh, I can't stand the expression, property journey, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use that uh, you know, in the absence of another. Well, let's call it property yeah. career, because that's what it yeah. is. Or property business, because that's what it is, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, so so get along, look, look them up, up now. I'm, uh, I'm Will Mallard. This is my Property World podcast. And Adam Lawrence, always a pleasure um, and looking forward to the Sunday supplement.
um, which comes out each week, as the name suggests, on a Sunday. Uh, check it out and connect with Adam Lawrence on LinkedIn. Thanks, Will. Always a pleasure. Look forward to the next time already. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.